0: Hello and welcome to the Skytime podcast with me, Simon Cousins. This is the podcast that aims to share information and experiences within the Sky community during the COVID-19 crisis. Eventually, Skytime will be a vehicle to promote the island to the world as we celebrate the people, places and providers that make Sky such a great place to live, work and visit. Coming up this week. We speak to the former RAF medic who's employed his 30 years of experience dealing with health emergencies around the world to lead Sky's community response to the COVID-19 crisis. And looking ahead to a brighter future, we hear plans for a network of safe walking, cycling and wheeling routes across Sky. My first guest was an RAF medic for 30 years, responding to epidemics and other health emergencies in some of the toughest environments on the planet. Jack McFarlane's wealth of experience has been put to good use by Sky Community Response in preparing for and dealing with COVID-19. Jack, welcome to the Skytime podcast. Good morning. Firstly, talk me through how you became a medic in the RAF. I joined the
1: Royal Air Force in 1982 uh, as a medic following my, my basic training, I was posted to a base in Suffolk, and then from there on I went out to Germany, and I served in various places such as Falcon Islands, Ascension Island, Belize, Afghanistan, Cyprus, Iraq, uh, Sierra Leone, and, and many other locations around the world. So I've been very fortunate to see a good proportion of the world.
0: As a medic, you're not just dealing with the health issues and injuries to your fellow servicemen, the role is much wider.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a popular misconception. I mean, Other than the war fighting side, which is the bit that most of you see on the television, most deployments are actually in peacekeeping roles and they're actually in aid of civil powers. So they're in aid of countries that have got issues. So quite often um, we'll go out and go to various places and try and improve their quality of living, standard of life, and we'll look at things like communicable diseases and we'll look at public health. So there's very much a focus, particularly within within the the medical services, on public health. Um, It's much better for people to, to... concentrate on keeping people well as opposed to then treating them when they're unwell. So there's there's a, a big emphasis on public health and a big emphasis on contingency planning. Um, so when you go to different places in the world, there's a lot of pre-planning that's done to understand what the environment is, to understand what the threats are in that area, to understand what's happening to the local population uh, and what their issues are. And if you can understand those things, then you can generally try and make a difference and you can keep your own troops uh, safe and well.
0: Tell me about an epidemic that you've actually been involved in in tackling, and uh, and the stages that you go through.
1: So, I've been involved in, in various things. I've been involved in, in planning for Ebola. I think um, the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone happened after I just after I left the Air Force. I was involved in planning what we would do to tackle the Ebola crisis. I've been involved in um, in moving Lassa fever patients from various parts of Africa back to the UK in Royal Air Force aircraft. And this is obviously, they are highly contagious. So there are specialist equipment and services to do that. And some of those things, like we called it the bubble, have have actually been used in the UK recently in in adapted formats in the back of RAF helicopters to move COVID-19 patients about. So lessons that were learned 20 years ago haven't been forgotten and have been reused. The most recent one probably was uh, that I was involved in was probably the swine flu crisis back in 2009, 2010, which affected large parts of the United Kingdom. And again, is it on a much smaller scale than COVID, the COVID-19 crisis, but the same principles were in place, large numbers of people became ill with flu-like symptoms. So there were a lot of lessons learned from that. And a lot of the processes that were put into place during that time, I've been able to use within the sort of sky community and advising people how how we might do things and it certainly influenced our contingency planning quite extensively so one of the things that the military is very very good at is planning and it's very good at learning lessons and it's a very open environment so it's okay to do things wrong as long as you understand you've done those things wrong and you don't have to put them right afterwards so a lot of the, the plans that i had from writing flu pandemics which was the last Major document that I wrote at RFK loss before I left. Um, I have actually had copies of that, and I was able to change that and and try and use some of those protocols and things to try and help influence how we've as um response have done things here um, on the island. So that has been helpful. Um, the main thing with these sorts of things is to be robust. Is is to not don't be frightened about getting it wrong. Be robust identify what the problem is contain that problem and then work with it to resolve it and, and, and manage it but the main thing is, is to, a lot of people are worried about will i get it right or will i get it wrong you just got to say this is i think what the problem is and this is what we need to do about it but planning is is everything if you've planned ahead you'll have a pretty good chance of getting on top of things very quickly where things go wrong is where there isn't any planning ahead and you haven't put the required logistics in place or figured out how you're going to get those logistics.
0: And how important in that planning phase is it to think about taking the community with you?
1: Oh, very important. The bottom line, in, in any infectious disease or communicable disease, if the community don't come with you, then you're on you're a hide into nothing. Because if people, for instance, in, on this occasion, the advice was to self-isolate to stay if you're feeling unwell, to stay indoors, to decrease your footprint around the island, to wash your hands when you are out, to maintain social distancing. All of these things are absolutely paramount. If you don't get those right, then you get into real trouble. And I think here on, particularly on Sky, we have done tremendously well, and within our local catchment area of Sky Lockhouse and elsewhere. We have done really, really well. And we've always expected to get a lower infection rate because of our geographical location and because of the spread. But it's not, it, it wasn't impossible that it could have hit us much harder. And I think things that we've done, have done, have made a massive difference. And certainly when I've, on a few occasions that I've been out and about, having to go to various meetings or and such like, I've been you know really, really impressed by the lack of people on the road the lack of people walking around, people maintaining the proper distances. It's, it's been really, really noticeable. And one of the things I found out a couple of weeks ago was that um, the Highlands has actually been able to maintain an 85% lockdown. I understand that this is done from technology using mobile phones. So I think that's really, really impressive.
0: How does that compare to other parts of the country?
1: Well, I, mean, I think some of the inner city, the major cities have been as low as sort of 50%. And, but by all the caps you could actually sit on. If you have the technology, you can sit and watch mobile phones moving around in cars, up and down streets, and people wandering around and stuff. So, we've done really, really well. Here. And I would say to the people of, of our area, you know, fantastic. You know, hats off to you. you've done a fantastic, an absolutely fantastic job. And we are where we are now with so few cases, predominantly because of what you've done.
0: You mentioned planning and the ability to to make mistakes and we shouldn't be fearful of making mistakes but in this pandemic so little was known about COVID-19 so the planning therefore could not be as robust as it might be with other pandemics such as Ebola where the science is a bit clearer.
1: We already know from things such as swine flu that's good personal hygiene and distancing is important, because these are aerosol-based viruses, so it doesn't take an awful lot of working out to realise that the further away you are from somebody that's coughing and sneezing, the less likely you are to, to be affected by that. Doesn't mean you're not going to be affected by it in some way. So from a planning perspective, we know that these types of things, how they're likely to manifest and how they're likely to make you ill, so you can plan for things like PPE. So PPE could have been managed, I think, much better than it was. Even on a local level, it's something we may need to look at in the future. Certainly, Winds and Sky's community response are looking at it now. So maybe we do need to keep local caches of PPE, such as masks and gloves and face masks and screens and such like. They're not difficult to store. We saw things such as hospital scrubs. Now, these are just very basic cotton pyjamas and mostly used inside high dependency units in hospitals and in theatres and they're used because they're they're comfortable to wear and they're easy to keep clean and they're easy to wear with other PPE. And you tend, by wearing them, it focuses you, You're in you're in a controlled environment. The problem is once something like this happens is, and this has happened many, many times around the world, is once these types of situations happen, then that's one of the items that we go looking for. But they're actually in short supply because there's not a massive demand for them all the time. So suddenly when GP surgeries are wanting them, care homes are wanting them, hospitals are wanting them in general wards, the UK supply just runs out. So the pre-planning on that would be that maybe we need to have those types of things more readily available. We were very, very fortunate. We've got a Facebook group on Sky and Loch Elsh called uh, Sky Scrubs and they set up quite quickly and they've made 470 sets of these items. In, in a very short order, I mean, within about six weeks, so, which is phenomenal because, you know, these take about half a day to make a set. Um, so the, the amount of work done by these 25 ladies is just unbelievable. And I think we've just, we've now, out of the 470 we've ordered um, through them, we've, we've got about 15 sets left to pick up. So that's great. But going back to that sort of planning is, for instance, you know that, say, within a, a care home setting or... A residential setting, you know, if you've got 20 people and the likelihood is they're going to get ill, well, the types of things, even if it's a gastrointestinal outbreak, you know, an outbreak of diarrhoea, well, those it's this very same basic health things that you need to do. So you need to keep your hands clean. You need to not breathe over people. You need to make sure that all the surfaces are clean. So those types of items don't change from, from one... Infectious diseases, a communicable disease to another, you just need to keep those items in ready supply. The problem comes in a pandemic is, is that everybody suddenly wants those items. So, the part of that contingency planning is to make sure you've got some all the time.
0: You've mentioned scrubs, but there are so many other different forms of PPE that were required. How much in short supply were they in Sky, and how come Sky Community Response managed to source them when NHS procurement was struggling?
1: I won't knock the NHS. I think the NHS have done the very best job within the ability that they've had to do it at the time. The thing is what the NHS, like all big organisations, and let's not fool yourself, it is a company, it's a big company, is it is constricted in part to suppliers. So they set up contracts with suppliers. And when those supply lines are put onto huge demand, they can't necessarily meet them. So in something like a pandemic many of the health boards are using the same suppliers. So suddenly everybody is asking for those same items and those items will run out. It's just it's just one of those things, we we'll just have to accept that. What's really needed is, is the flexibility to be able to go to other suppliers. Now the problem with PPE is, is you have to make sure that it meets the required standards. So there are UK standards, European standards, there are many different types of masks to the same standard, but depending on what country they're made in is what designation or name they're called. So people like the health authorities and the health boards, they, when they buy, they've got to make sure what they're buying is will meet UK standards because potentially they're putting them on to healthcare workers who are putting their life on the line, and, and they need to make sure that that equipment is is 100%. So you will see from things like however many thousands of aprons that they They flew in from Turkey. They actually, unfortunately, they didn't meet the UK standards when they checked it when they got back. So they didn't use them, quite rightly. So where we've been able to to go into, we've been quite successful, is we're not restricted by those constraints of having set contractors. So what we did very early on is we basically identified the types of equipment that we needed. We found out where we could get it on the island. So things like Tyvek suits... Tyvek suits are an industrial piece of equipment for PPE. Unfortunately, the the company stopped providing to outlets back in, I think, early January, I believe. And the government took all of the orders from Tyvek because they started to plan towards this. So we went locally and managed to get a lot of those from paint sprayers, garages, anyone that's using that type of aerosol-type equipment we got there, we managed to get FFP3 masks we got from these people, and um, from a lot of these suppliers, Dusons and, and, and Harborough and lots of places. They all managed to provide us with some equipment as well. So that gave us a baseline. Uh, and then we managed to go out and procure it from other places as well. And a lot of stuff has been made on the island. Things like the face shields, the schools and various other people have all made this. It goes to show we can produce stuff ourselves and things like nitrile gloves, rubber gloves. Well, they're used in, in, in quite generally as well in, in lots of different applications. So we managed to get those things reasonably quite quickly. And I think at the moment we've pro- we've provided something like sixty four thousand single items of PPE to healthcare providers throughout the catchment area of Sky.
0: A population of ten thousand, and you've produced sixty four thousand pieces of equipment, and that's all been through community donations and fundraising
1: yeah it has indeed Yeah, and we've had to be written mean, when we've we've liaised with the national health service throughout this to make sure that they're happy that the items that we provided meet their very strict um, requirements and standards but the actual response from people has been amazing and you know the recent um fundraising was sky community response and sky kamalak has just been absolutely phenomenal
0: And where, from your point of view, as an expert in dealing with epidemics, are we in the crisis? Because we're starting to hear, obviously, this week of easing, uh, of lockdown, etc.
1: I wouldn't call myself an expert in it, but um, I've certainly had quite significant experience in in, in the past. But things didn't happen um, on on Sky as bad as they could have happened. We did have issues with, with Home Farm, and we've had one or two other cases since, but People on Sky aren't silly, and they are wary of of what could come. And we are very much our industry, one of our main industries in Sky is tourism. So that's a lot of people will be quite nervous about what happens and how how we unlock from lockdown and and what the future looks like. And I share that myself. Um, I think the key is going to be very clear guidance from government on how we go forward, particularly in the hospitality and tourism sector. And my only concern is, is that there may be a tendency towards reducing some of the things that we put in place to fit what business wants very quickly. And I can understand that. Um, some of the pictures, you know, that we may see are, again, this is my personal opinion, is, you know, when you look at social distancing, I believe looking at the papers this morning, that that may be reduced quite soon from two metres perhaps to one metre. And I know they've done that in New Zealand, but it will probably um, result in the reduced numbers allowed to be in bars and in pubs and in hotels. It may be that in accommodation sites that there needs to be a rest period between someone vacating a room and the room being able to be used by somebody else. And particularly as we know with the virus, it, it takes about three days to break itself down. But I don't know it could be one days it could be two days it could be three days but that's going to affect people's planning people will still be becoming positive with COVID-19 for some months ahead most likely so things to think about possibly are that you know if you have a hotel or a and b or self catering what happens if somebody actually becomes sick with COVID-19 whilst they're on holiday and staying in your accommodation you know do they have to get in the car and drive home things that happened recently in the press may suggest that wasn't the best idea to do. But that will have an impact because if, they, if if somebody at the end of their holiday period then has to isolate for 14 days in your house, that will impact on your, your bookings that you've got after that. So there may need to be, again, when I go back to contingency planning, it, it's a good idea for, for everyone to start, if they have businesses, is to start contingency planning. And I understand that some of the things that may happen will be that um, you'll have to do a risk assessment of your premises. So you'll have to look at things like your toilet facilities. You'll need to look at how many people you can have inside your restaurant or cafe or hotel or, or whatever at, at any such time. You'll need to look at your cleaning regime. And I'm pretty sure there's about to, to be released the types of cleaning they'll, they'll expect you to do in these facilities. Things like cafes, may, you know, we've been used to for a long, long time having containers full of utensils on top of the table. Well, that's probably not going to be possible for some time. So that thought process needs to be changed. So each service will need to be a complete clean down service of the table and cutlery and such like will need to be brought out each time. Menus, we might not want to have menus sitting on the table where people can pick them up multiple times. So you may want to put a a screen up on the wall that you can alter with your laptop so you can put your menu on there have been lots of different ways of, of, of thinking for a while. I think we will get back to normal, but it may take some time.
0: There's been a lot of images from around Europe and the world, indeed, about uh, the new sort of cafe culture and everything being outside. I've seen images of greenhouses being employed by some cafes and restaurants. Do you think a, an outdoor cafe culture is is realistic for Sky?
1: I've been fortunate to live in, in many countries in Europe over the years and they've had that type of culture 30, 40 years, and it seems to work very, very well. So, you know, for instance, if you're looking at the four phases that the Scottish government's looking at at the moment, I think at phase two, they're allowing bars to open and cafes to open, but you have to be outside. Well, that's fine in many places in in the UK, maybe elsewhere in Scotland, but it's quite difficult here in Skye because a, a lot of our establishments don't have outside spaces. So the only outside space you've actually got is the street, so perhaps, you know, in certain areas we could, they, they could look at putting these these type of outside seating areas in where you make your order at the table and somebody brings it to you. It's We're fortunate in some of this, the layout, particularly, say, in Portree, where you could put this sort of thing down the middle of a road, you've got pavement either side of it. So you're not restricting that people can go up and down. Yes, it may cause some issues with deliveries, but again, those streets aren't particularly long. So these sorts of things you can work around. We've got various squares in some of the places, in, in some of our villages and towns that you could, you could adapt a similar thing. A lot of places have food vans from various cafes and restaurants and stuff that set up Friday nights and Saturday nights in, in certain towns in Europe. That sort of thing could be looked at in, in the short term. My feeling is they'll probably try and reduce the social distancing quite quickly because they will want to try and get people back inside buildings. I think the, the, the challenge will be to, to hotels and bars and such like is how do you manage the number of people that you have inside a building? There'll have to be some form of control over how many people you let inside the building. And again, people are people. They are, there's this, you, know, you may have heard this, but there's something called the human factors. You just don't know what someone's going to do. So you can plan to the best of your ability, but there's no way of controlling what someone's going to do on the spur of the moment
0: and what about public spaces such as car parks and public toilets that nobody is looking after on a hour by hour basis what sort of planning needs to go into the management of these facilities
1: car parks in particular i, I particularly wouldn't i wouldn't worry too much about car parks because we we don't we tend to have social distancing in car parks purely because of the mechanics of a car park. The the distance between cars is is the the distance of opening a door and you can't both open a door at the same time. So we do tend to look at the person who's in the car next to us and nod at him, let him open his door and he gets out. And once he's got out and vacated his car and walked off, then we'll get out. So I wouldn't worry about car parks too much.
0: I mentioned public toilets. The reason for that is that Unless you can actually control flows and control the cleaning regime of individuals, it's going to be very hard to stop transmission.
1: Yeah, I think you're quite right. I think public toilets are going to be almost impossible to control. Unless you've actually got somebody outside controlling how many people go in at any one time, there's no control over it. You're just going to have to ask people to use, use their common sense. And it might be you need to put some signage out, say, um, and some marks on the pavement... For, for, for social distancing and actually say so many people at a time. And, but unless, you know, the council or whoever else controls them is actually going to have an attendant, it, and that's pretty unlikely to happen, I don't think you could control that.
0: You mentioned there the use of common sense, and that's something that the government in recent weeks has been pushing, that we should all use common sense. But how damaging, from a personal opinion point of view, has the behaviour of Dominic Cummings been in terms of keeping a consistent message and getting the public to obey what we all believe we should be doing?
1: I think it's very difficult with public figures you know, when, when these types of things happen. You know, Dominic Cummings is not the only person that's done this. Many people have done various things similar to it. Do I believe he should have done it personally? No, I don't. I think he should have stayed at home. Will it impact on the way people are thinking? Undoubtedly, it is, because you, you wouldn't get the outcry that we're getting if it hadn't. You know, the government asked people to buy into this. And as I said back to it, when you capture something like this, you've got to take everybody with you because your planning and your ability to to, um, to deal with something is only as good as the people that are buying into it and abiding by the, the rules and guidance. Fortunately, this happened with, with Dominic Cummins' right towards the end of this sort of 10-week period. My fear would have been if it had happened earlier on and it, and it had been identified and we're in the situation right now is that we could be in a very different picture as a result of that.
0: Finally, as we move towards the easing of lockdown, what would be the one single piece of advice that you would give to the public to reduce their risk of catching this virus?
1: I think as long as we keep doing as we've been doing, we are wary of what's around us. So if people do start to develop the symptoms of COVID-19, that they act quite quickly in uh, in line with the government's new guidance that's coming out on trace and track. And that you just keep maintaining your personal hygiene to the highest standard that you can with hand washing and such like, and just be wary. And even, you know, going back to things like in shops, shop with your eyes, pick it up, put it in your bag. You know, we need to sort of change the way we've done things in the past um, for at least the foreseeable future.
0: Jack McFarlane, thank you very much for your time.
1: My pleasure, take care.
2: In Sky, we are lucky to live and work in the most beautiful place on earth. As we rise to the new challenges our island faces, our tourism industry has a chance to reset and resolve issues. We have the chance to rebuild. But we need your support and we need your voice. Join Sky Connect and help us reopen with a new sustainable tourism industry. Thank you.
0: Now when I started this podcast at the beginning of April, one of my first guests were Mark and Sam Crow. They run a vegetarian b and and the Sky Bike Shack. At that point, they were facing a year with no income and were falling through the gaps in terms of government support. Life was looking pretty bleak. But I'm delighted to say things have improved for at least one part of the business. Mark Crow, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Good to be back. Good to speak
0: to you again. Now, Mark, you'd invested thousands of pounds in new bikes for hiring out to tourists when lockdown struck. I remember you being really quite down about your prospects for the year.
2: Yes, I think leading up to the, the lockdown announcement, that week leading up to it and then the week beyond it, was, was, was a fair dip in the whole country. Nobody knew what to expect. Everybody feared for a, a big economic downturn across all sectors, especially up here, tourism. We weren't expecting any visitors until at least the middle of the summer and didn't know the prospects beyond that. And about two weeks before that, I'd taken delivery of 18 bikes, £12,500 worth of bikes to hire, of, uh, of which I didn't have the funds at that time to pay the entirety of it. And then about two weeks after lockdown, I was getting a steady trickle of bikes coming in for servicing, people unable to do anything else we were all allowed to exercise. And that trickle turned into quite a waterfall of bikes. So, yeah, I've been really busy.
0: So is this a case of people digging out old rusty bikes from the shed and wanting a service <laughs> or a complete restoration job in some cases?
2: Yes, everything. I tended to start with, do you, do you want to take a photograph of it and send it in, just so we can have a reassessment assessment before it comes in. Uh, but yeah, I had just about everything.
0: What was the worst bike that you brought back to life?
2: Uh, it's still outside. <laughs> <laughs> That's the uh, 10 years in a barn. Looks pretty late 80s, early 90s, retro, early mountain bike. But I think I may be able to rob off other things that have not made it through the uh, restoration process and, uh, and, and bring it back to life in some form. That's going to be a Uh, More of a a project of bringing something back than an income generator, I think, that one for me. One good thing, or a very good thing that came up was was being able to get a grant to offer free bike servicing for key workers and NHS staff. One of my suppliers had started to offer, giving out a free jacket and helmet and light set if we undertook free bike servicing. And I remember having a bit of an emotional wrangle with myself, thinking I, I, I can't really afford to do free servicing because otherwise I'm, I'm not gonna have any income. And then there's a charity in the UK called Cycling UK announced grant funding for us to do servicing repairs and if necessary loan bikes and Applied very early on. I knew the project officer and was successful in getting that grant. And um, that's meant even more work. So how many
0: key workers have taken you up on this, this offer?
2: We're nearly towards the end of the funding. We think we'll have been able to do around about 36 bikes in the, in the funding. And over and above that, we had, uh, we had a list of about 50 people. Uh, we stopped it at 30 and, and, and called it a waiting list. It's been really successful. Everything from people who do cycle, who wanted a bike service to people who hadn't been on their bikes for a few years, but wanted to get out and, and, and do that. And uh, no, it's, it's been fantastic. And I, I even took on somebody to help me working from his garage in Putney, another qualified bike mechanic who was retired.
0: That's great. And in general terms, what are you seeing on the the roads in and around Portree? Uh, Are there a substantial number more people out on their bikes on a daily basis?
2: Absolutely. Just generally doing any exercise, I think. Uh, Our our house is on the half-marathon route, roughly on the new course, about eight miles on the route. and. It acts as a bit of a loop for people coming out of puttery and going back. So they can either do a, a 9, 10 mile loop or they do, do a 13 mile loop if they go along the travis Road. And I've seen more people that I don't know and have never seen on a bike than the people that I do know on a bike. Uh, and as well as on a bike, people running and just walking down the road because the roads are so much quieter as well.
0: So just coming back to your business, how much has this helped you? It, it won't have replaced the income that you would have generated from hiring out bikes to tourists, but how much has it helped you?
2: No, it's helped massively, and uh, not just the servicing work. I've sold many more bikes than I would normally have sold at this time of year. That's become a bit of an issue for bike manufacturers and that they've just about now ran out of stock. But very early on, I was firstly on a daily basis, trying to find bikes for people. So we've sold a lot of bikes, and I reckon at least three times as many services as I would normally have done in the first two months, April, May of this year. So it's meant that alongside the grant funding from Cycling UK and the self-employment grant has, has meant that we're okay. We can look forward with a bit of positivity through the summer months.
0: Something else positive that's happened, and it's just been announced, is that you're taking on a role with an exciting cycling project for Sky. Tell me about it.
2: Yes, we've had a bit of a pause, but we're ready to really start off now uh, looking at cycle infrastructure, or walking, cycling and wheeling infrastructure across Sky. Back when Sky Connect started, I already knew Alistair Dante then, and we had talked about when I started this business about cycle trails, cycle paths, lack of them on Sky, wouldn't it be good if we could get that going? And that would benefit both locals and tourism. And very early on with Sky Connect, they had an evening where they asked people to present project ideas. And it wasn't a project; it was just an idea of mine. But I had some knowledge from working for the roads department of some of the the, the quiet roads and the old abandoned single track roads around Skye. So Alistair nudged me and persuaded me to to put a project in and uh, I I created a list of all the single track roads that were quiet, existing paths and single track roads, single track roads used as paths and, and abandoned single track roads that on the face of it would be quite easy to scrape and open up again. So we did that, presented that as a project, and unbeknownst to me, Alistair's ticked away at that over the last couple of years, and uh, then got in touch with me to tell me that he was putting a bid in to Sustrans, and, and that's been successful.
0: So it's a £90,000 grant. What will that pay for?
2: That will pay for feasibility study and a strategic plan as to how we take things forward. The initial idea we probably had was to look at creating a, a network of paths to go from one end of the island to the other, on the sky, through the main settlements and out the other end. But the funding from Sustrans is called Places for Everyone. It's uh, administered by Sustrans and comes from Transport Scotland. And the aim of that is to get more people using active travel methods, both within their community and linking between communities in their locality. So we will aim to start off by consulting with communities, we'll split sky into sections and consult with communities to see what people would like to do, what they would like to have in their area, what what would they like to travel to in terms of using active travel, walking, cycling or wheeling, and what's preventing them from doing that now. And then we'll take that information from them and we'll look at how we can facilitate that with infrastructure.
0: Will the Skywide Project link up with local initiatives such as the, the Broadford to Kyle Cycleway, which is actually underway?
2: Very much so. Uh, I think the, the Broadford Cycleway Project is really an inspiration for this project and also drives that desire from the people who are involved in that, that cycle infrastructure in Sky doesn't stop with just a link between Broadford and Calacan. There's much more to go beyond that. For whatever reason, smaller population, uh, lack of old railway lines, difficult terrain, uh, rural West Highland and Sky have, have lagged well, well behind on cycle infrastructure. It's been something that has been at the forefront of thinking in more urban areas. There's definitely a desire, as we can see from what's been happening the last couple of months, for people to get on a bike and use a bike. And I feel the the block to that is that people aren't confident cycling on roads that are busy.
0: Is it realistic to be able to set up a network of cycle routes that don't involve some stretches of existing roads?
2: I think initially we will look at where people want to go from and to, and there will be what we would call low-hanging fruit uh, existing paths and abandoned old single track roads that we can get in on and requires minimal earthworks, and we can create paths. And we may find that between point A and B that we can quite quickly achieve a a decent percentage of that and then work on filling those missing links in over a longer term plan. We also may find that there are very short sections of path that would open up high usage, things that would link a community or within a community just now, but at the moment it may be less than a mile but that mile involves going on a 60-mile-an-hour road at the moment. If we can give something that means people can walk and cycle on that route, then that's a huge win, I think.
0: You mentioned that this is the strategic planning phase. People tend to be very impatient. They want to know when are these Mm. routes going to be available. Have you got any idea of what the timescale might be?
2: The project programme was approximately 40 weeks. What we'd like to do is just, there'll be at least two tranches of consultation in this round of funding alone, and we want to keep informing people where we're at and what we're proposing. We hope at the end of this project then we can identify those easier wins or those those areas that are likely to have the biggest impact, and we can move straight into a bid for design on those sections. So. I think realistically, we could have some infrastructure in the next few years and then we could have a longer term plan of five to 10 years to actually link some decent sections up on the island. And although that might seem long term, we have to have that vision because continually pulling more and more vehicles on the sky, cars, isn't sustainable.
0: And if people want to contribute, how can they get involved and take part in the consultation?
2: I'm working with the consultant at the moment on some forms of online consultation. We would have expected pre-COVID-19 that we would have been going around local village halls and asking people to come in and give their views. And we would have been looking for some emailed and written submissions. But we can't do that and probably can't do that for some time. So we're working on an online survey and a method of getting mapping and information that people can view online and launching that through both targeted emails through community groups and also launching a Facebook page. I hope that if people can do, they can offer their views and, and, and we can consult with them while they're at home That and we don't have to drag them out of the village hall, that we may well get more meaningful consultation and, and, and a wider range of views.
0: It's never been a better time for cycling on Sky, has it?
2: No, it hasn't. It's amazing, really. And I, I just hope that people hook in with that enjoyment that they're having just now. I've certainly felt less like I go out to cycle for a, a training purpose, but more for headspace and an um, and enjoyment. And it's that, that, that pace has sort of dropped down and it's, it's more about enjoying the time out there than it is about pushing hard on the pedals.
0: Mark Crow, thank you very much and good luck with the project.
2: Thanks very much, Simon. All the best.
0: And that's all for this edition of the Skytime podcast. If you have a subject you'd like me to explore or a guest you'd like to hear, please email simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk. You can also email me if you'd like to sponsor or advertise on the podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay home, and stay in touch with family, friends and neighbours. Aikiva!